As more Canadian provinces open up vaccination for youth and adults, it's easy to think we're on the road to eliminating COVID-19. Looking south of the border to the U.S. or across the pond to the U.K. and Israel, getting first and second shots in the arms is driving down new cases and deaths. But being a worldwide pandemic, COVID-19 isn't going to give up without a fight. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, many hoped it would be a temporary inconvenience. A year and a half after it was first identified, COVID-19 remains a part of our life, with some end in sight as vaccinations roll out across the country. In a recent survey by Nature magazine of 100 immunologists, infectious disease researchers and virologists working on the coronavirus, found that 90% thought COVID-19 would become endemic. And what does that mean, Adam? Well, we bring back an expert we've previously had on This Is Why. Cynthia Carr, epidemiologist and founder of Epi Research Incorporated in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The question that we're trying to figure out today is why could COVID-19 become endemic and stick around for years? But let's start with just some basic terminologies. Um, There's the word endemic, the word pandemic, uh, and uh, what's the third one that I was thinking of? Um, Epidemic, outbreak eradicated epidemic epidemic that was the other one the other the the other emic so endemic epidemic pandemic what are the differences so endemic means that a a disease is circulating in the population it might be seasonal um, and you might have years where you have lots of that um, uh, virus or disease in the population and years where you don't so the common cold that's an example of a illness that is endemic in the population. We, we don't have a vaccine for it. We don't really have a good treatment for it. We just have to kind of get through it. Uh, and year to year, the common colds come back and they're caused by different viruses. So that's an example of an endemic virus. Um, an epidemic uh, is when there is technically, we would say statistically, a higher number of cases than you would expect. So certainly when there's a brand new virus, one case is an alert that an epidemic is occurring because this is a newly generated virus for which we probably don't have immunity for, uh, which is what occurred with COVID-19. So an epidemic could occur in certain uh, areas. Uh, So it kind of starts from a case to a cluster, uh, so a small group, and then could be an outbreak uh, within that community getting bigger. And then an epidemic is the numbers are getting larger. The pandemic is not really a mathematical model so much as a concept that the epidemic that might have started, say, in Kingston, Ontario, is now in London, England. That same virus is in London, England. It could be associated with somebody from Kingston went to London and they brought the virus with them. Mm. So that's not yet a pandemic. What becomes a pandemic is if that virus starts to spread within the communities. And that's when it was triggered uh, in March of 2020. It looks like this is a true pandemic because there's community spread occurring globally and it couldn't be mapped back now to individual travelers. Here in Canada, in the States, uh, parts of Europe, we're seeing more and more vaccines being rolled out. What role does immunization have in eliminating any virus or any disease? Vaccine is an extremely important uh, intervention uh, to uh, move us toward a disease becoming a preventable disease. 
That doesn't mean the disease has been eradicated. It it doesn't mean it's been eliminated, uh, but it means it's being controlled, and that we could be on the path to elimination and eradication of that disease. Um, so absolutely, uh, the the global goal uh, is uh, to make COVID-19 a preventable illness through uh, vaccination. Um, just a note that people might not know, uh, there's only been one disease, smallpox, since 1980 that's been declared as eradicated, uh, a human virus in, in, uh, in the world that's been declared eradicated by the World Health Organization. Eradication is very tricky. It requires both a vaccine and a treatment. And it's much more difficult to eradicate a disease when it's in both a human and an animal reservoir. So the virus, if it can live in animals and it can live in humans, such as influenza, such as COVID-19, it's even more difficult to eradicate it because we don't know what's happening in the animal population uh, in terms of controlling it. And then again, uh, what we see over time is a human can come in contact uh, with an animal that may have that illness and then it can uh, uh, kind of inflame it again. So um, the concept of eliminate is different from eradicate. So we can certainly eliminate a disease from circulation. Uh, so there are certain areas in the world right now that seem to have really firm control that you would almost say right now it's eliminated from circulating in the area, but that doesn't mean it's eradicated. And then control is some, kind of somewhere in the middle. You don't think you've really eliminated it, um, but you've got control of it. So a, a real world example, for example, could be um, polio, which is still found in a very, very small number of places in the world. So we can't say it's eradicated, but it's certainly eliminated uh, from Canada. We don't we don't see that in Canada. So that's an example where you could see circulation in different areas of the world, even on a very small level. And other areas of the world could say we've actually eliminated those diseases from circulation. And then other examples would be control. Certain countries have better control, for example, of HIV uh, than is occurring still in Africa where there is not control of HIV. So that's still an epidemic of urgency in that country, whereas other countries have been able to control that gained through not through vaccination, but through uh, treatment and public health kind of information. So those three terms you used, control, elimination and eradication, those are three varying degrees of um, of, of handling the virus, for, for lack of a better verb, uh, mm -hmm. where eradication is completely gone zero, uh, elimination is minimal amount and control is, is maybe more controlling the spread and preventing um, yeah major disease, major outbreaks? Yeah, you might have small outbreaks, uh, but you get in control of it quickly. It doesn't get that inflamed community spread again. So mm -hmm. those are the layers, but again, eradication, even you know, a disease, if you think of chickenpox, where our understanding is if you come in contact with the child, you have lifelong immunity, you can get vaccinated for chickenpox. It is still not declared eradicated. We still haven't gotten rid of it um, because there are still targets and opportunities for the, the disease to spread. Um, we know that, uh, for example, SARS in 2003-04, which is one of the coronaviruses, uh, you know, we, there was a very serious situation, but it seemed to kind of flame out fast too. But mm -hmm. we cannot say that SARS is eradicated because we don't know why. We don't know what happened that we stopped 
seeing it spread. Um, so again, it could still be in an animal reservoir somewhere. It could pop up again. Um, so even something that we haven't seen, we can't call it eradicated. You mentioned chickenpox. That's an example of an endemic disease that's still circulating here. And measles has been largely suppressed in Canada thanks to vaccination. But sometimes you hear about measles outbreaks in schools, for example. And that's an example to your point about measles of a serious situation. Um, so that when we, again, when we had clusters, uh, for example, in New York City of uh, people in a particular cultural community that didn't believe in vaccination, um, they gave uh, the measles an opportunity to spread like wildfire within that small group uh, that then could spread. So it wasn't like there was one person here and another person far away that kind of randomly hadn't been vaccinated. The most mm. dangerous situation is when you have a group of people that interact regularly, all of whom are at risk for disease because it just takes one and then it spreads. And then you've got even more people opportunity to spread to sort of those random people that haven't been vaccinated. Right now with COVID-19, we're using vaccinations to try to try to stop the spread uh, and hopefully stop the severity of, uh, of the disease. As more of these uh, vaccinations go out, what are you aware of some of the, the signposts that uh, we should be looking for for vaccination of a population to um, move maybe from that community spread that, uh, that is a characteristic of a, a, a characteristic of a pandemic more towards uh, endemic COVID uh, and then even more, maybe even towards uh, complete eradication. What are some of those major uh, milestones that that uh, in vaccination that we could be looking for. It was challenging to give sort of a proportional uh, of the population um, because the concept of herd immunity is actually a mathematical calculation that's not that complicated. But what makes it challenging is part of the model is the reproductive rate. So again, the, just to keep it simple, if I can infect one other person, that will keep the virus going. If we can get that reproductive rate down under one, either by vaccination or distancing, um, so that I can infect less than one person, that virus will run out of targets. It'll just, it won't have anywhere to go and to spread. What happens though now with the variants of concern and that increased transmissibility is that compared to the uh, the former version of uh, COVID-19 we were dealing with, even with the B117, right in the beginning in the United Kingdom, what they saw was people in exactly the same environment uh, that that person with B117 could spread to 1.6 people compared to the one-to-one, -one, uh, as an example, spread with the con with the regular uh, version. So as the uh, reproductive rate or the ability to transmit uh, gets higher, the proportion of the population that we have to vaccinate for safety, that also keeps going up. We have to now vaccinate more and more people to reduce the numbers of targets uh, for this virus that's really good at spreading. So that's why it might seem confusing to people that, you know, we heard, we heard 70%, we heard 80%, we heard 90%. Why does it keep changing? It keeps changing because we've given this virus a, a real momentum. And with momentum, it's given, uh, it gets opportunities once it gets into every body and makes millions and millions of copies, there's going to be 
be mutations. And sometimes those mutations, they really work in favor of the virus and that's what they hold on to. So, um, you know, what we can do though, is we can look at countries like the United Kingdom and Israel that had both a very efficient vaccination program while they held fast to their mitigation measures. And we can see that, you know, a country like Israel that in January was still having around 7,000 cases a day in a, in a population of about 8 million people. Now they're down to about 50 cases a day. Our country was having similar numbers of cases a day at that point, and now we've reduced our cases by maybe a thousand. So you can see that the faster you get people vaccinated and you keep those layers of protection in place, the faster you will see a reduction in hospitalization and deaths, but also that the true number of cases, which will allow you uh, to get back to normal. Through this past year and change, I've I've found uh, or I, I've, <clears throat> I've been reminded of you know from high school, I think biology, where I learned first learned about, um, you know, the difference between a bacteria and a virus and the fact that the virus can't live outside of the host. The virus needs us in order to live. And so, uh, and as you, as you said earlier, all of these variants come from random changes from that replication process, from that duplication process. I'm wondering if as time passes on and as it takes us time to, to vaccinate 6 billion people on this earth, uh, there, or more than six, I suppose, uh, is uh, the virus will change. There will be more variants. This is, this is you know, a statistical inevitability, but I'm wondering if um, how this virus could change. I've, I've read that there are some thoughts that it could decrease in severity. And the, the logic behind that is that the virus needs the host in order to stay alive. So it needs to strike that balance between being infected, infectious, but also not killing the host. Absolutely. It's just like thinking, why would you burn your own house down? That's exactly the analogy that the virus um, wants uh, to be able to continue to thrive and uh, continue uh, to spread throughout the population. The last thing it wants to do is kill the host. That's where you get these very rare but serious illnesses uh, with high mortality rates, uh, which is terrible. But the, the only good news about that is they really can't spread far because the host's don't live. Um, mm -hmm. What has made this particularly cha challenging, even compared to the influenza virus, is this long incubation period. Because even with influenza, within a day or two, you are sick and you know it. So you're staying away from people, you're not out and about, you're not going to work, you're going to the doctor, you're seeking care. Um, and of course, we've had vaccine campaigns, particularly for our vulnerable populations. Um, but more to the point about spread is even in our worst influenza years, um, we don't, we haven't seen it be just so uh, difficult to contain. And it is because of this asymptomatic spread and that you don't, if, even if you do get symptoms, it can take several days. And in the, the worst case about this is you're actually the most infectious in the two days before you develop any symptoms. So that's why we can't talk about trust and I feel fine and that person's fine. It's not about trust. It's literally to um, just to your defense and making decisions, uh, you won't know you have it until 
it's too late that you've already passed it on to other people. So that's why it's so important to follow the public health directives. We know how to stop the spread of this. We need to follow those rules. Cynthia, taking a peek at the Public Health Agency of Canada's website, we're still in the single digit percentage of Canadians who have been fully vaccinated, the amount of Canadians who have had two shots. And the worldwide number is still pretty low as well. We're still very early on in this process. I'm wondering if you can speak to the challenge of vaccinating the entire world to help drive down the spread and move towards control, towards elimination, towards eradication of COVID-19. Well, I'm glad you asked that because we're really kind of, we can get caught up in looking at our own backyard and thinking about just Canada or our, our, ourselves. Um, but we are a globally interconnected community and it is not just a throwaway saying that Dr. Tama said repeatedly that no one is protected unless everyone is protected. If it didn't matter who was vaccinated or not, then it wouldn't have mattered that there was one case identified in China, if you think of it that way. It mattered because people travel. We're a globally connected world. So even if we get a large portion of Canadians vaccinated, if it's still out of control in many areas of the world, that will absolutely impact us. The challenge that we're seeing is a severe inequity in access to vaccine. We have countries that have, even Canada, I believe that we've purchased enough four times our population. United States is even higher. We are so blessed and lucky to be one of the wealthiest countries, developed countries, because we have access to this. And for anybody to say, I don't want to get vaccinated, there are people in other countries that are begging on their knees for access to vaccine. They're begging. The World Health Organization is begging for equity in distribution of vaccine. So not only is this a challenge in terms of supply chain and accessing people that are hard to reach, uh, getting to everybody, you know, from the slums of India who would look, make a, a homeless person in Canada look like a king, like the extreme differential between the richest and the poor are things that many of us can't imagine. The World Health Organization is saying if we could even reach a goal of 20% of the most vulnerable populations in every country, that that would be an extreme achievement. The latest data I saw from the World Health Organization is that 80%, more than 80% of vaccine that has been uh, distributed is in the wealthiest countries and fewer than 1% of residents in the poorest countries have been vaccinated. How does that make sense? This is this disease, the, the poorer you are, the closer together you are, the more you must rely on day-to-day -day, uh, work because it's hand-to-mouth constantly, you are at the highest risk. And yet us in the wealthiest countries, we also have the, the even though we absolutely have risk, uh, we're not at the same level of risk as those countries that are, are in extreme uh, poverty, and yet we are the ones with the vaccine. This is Why is produced by me, Adam Toy, and Dave McIver. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. 
Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, get vaccinated if you can, and stay home. We'll see you soon.